Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Norton, the editor of Geopolitical Economy Report. I was invited to give a talk about the global financial system and how it's dominated by the United States, which uses this system in order to advance its geopolitical and economic interests. I did a brief history of the global financial system dominated by the United States from Bretton Woods, the conference in 1944 that established the IMF and the World Bank, through Bretton Woods II, after the US dollar was delinked from gold in 1971, and up to today, in the wake of the global financial crisis in 2008, with the rise of an increasingly multipolar world and new economic alternatives, and of course, the BRICS. So without further ado, here is the talk that I gave on the US-dominated global financial system and how it is essentially neo-colonial. I think it's very important to understand the Bretton Woods institutions, that is largely the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, in the context of colonialism. And we should never forget that when the Bretton Woods Conference was held in 1944, much of the world was still colonized. So these institutions are not only neo-colonial, they're colonial because they were created at a time in which, yes, the British Empire was collapsing at the end of World War II, but the British Empire still controlled a massive part of the world's territory, the French Empire, and of course, the US Empire has continued. So they have their origins in European colonialism toward the end of the European empires in World War II, going into the era of neocolonialism and decolonization in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and functionally today, they play a very similar role as kind of neo-colonial institutions. Now, it wasn't inevitable that this was going to happen. And I think it's important to study the history of the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 and the different proposals that had been presented. John Maynard Keynes, who is not a socialist. I mean, now it's funny is, you know, economics has moved so far to the right, especially with the rise of neoliberalism, that in, for, among some circles, Keynes is seen as a radical, but I mean, in his era, he was absolutely not a radical. He was really a centrist among different economists. Maybe you could say center left. And Keynes's vision for creating international financial institutions was quite different from the US proposals proposed by Harry Dexter White, who was the more conservative economist that was representing the United States. In fact, there is a famous photo of John Maynard Keynes facing Harry Dexter White at the Bretton Woods Conference, and it symbolically represents the two opposing viewpoints on each different side. And of course, again, it was the US side that ended up winning out. Keynes had envisioned, yes, the creation of institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, but specifically with an international clearing union with the Bond Corps, which is the international reserve currency he proposed instead of using the dollar, and very strict capital controls and control of monetary policy and the international currency, reserve currency, would be pegged to the major currencies and commodities in order to make sure that there was genuinely a more equitable uh, framework for countries around the world to trade. What actually happened instead of that, I mean, again, despite legitimate criticisms of Keynes and his limitations, what actually happened is the US won the debate to create these Bretton Woods institutions, and essentially they became instruments of US geopolitical and economic control. 
Now, one of the main things that Washington was interested in in the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference was making sure that there are no mechanisms that would make sure more even balance of payments around the world. Because at the end of World War II in 1944, 1945, you, the U.S. economy represented around one half of global GDP. Furthermore, the United States had 70% of the gold reserves out of the entire world. That obviously gave Washington a lot of economic power, considering one, that the US dollar was the global reserve currency pegged to gold. And furthermore, many other major currencies around the world were pegged to the dollar. That was what was agreed to at Bretton Woods. So this gave Washington massive economic and political power and it helped Washington shape reconstruction after World War II. And again, the U.S. wanted to make sure that its position as the leading exporter, especially as it reindustrialized Europe and prevented Europe from going socialist through the Marshall Plan, which was not done for benevolent reasons. It was to prevent Europe from going socialist and maintain a captive market for U.S. goods, which had all this production that it increased during the war. So one of the ways that the U.S. plan in doing that was making sure there were not mechanisms that prevented surplus countries from having too much surplus and trapping relatively poor countries in chronic deficits. That was exactly opposed to what Keynes had proposed. Keynes's idea with the International Clearing Union was that countries that had significant surpluses would build up a big account of what the bond core, which is the international reserve currency he proposed instead of using the dollar. And if, they, if surplus countries had too much in too many uh, reserves of the bond core in their account, it would be transferred to the International Clearing Union. So countries would be incentivized to not build up too big of a surplus. And that would also help countries, relatively poor countries that are reliant on a lot of imports that have deficits to balance their trade. Instead of that, which would have, again, it's not a perfect system, but it would have made international trade more equitable and prevented potentially this pattern we've seen for decades in which surplus countries like Germany, like Japan, continue to export and export and export while many countries in the global south cannot develop significant industry because they're facing all this competition and because the policies of the United States and Western powers have intentionally deindustrialized countries in the global south preventing them from developing their own industries, preventing them from using protectionist policies to create those industries, which is what would be necessary, which is exactly what the Western powers did, as the economist Hajun Cheng has shown in his book, Kicking Away the Ladder. So it was about keeping this colonial framework of the world in which the imperial surplus countries would, be, would continue to export their excess capital, the surplus value produced by their workers, and countries in the global south would not really have any alternatives. Now, that did change in the 70s, which I'll get to in a second, but I just wanted to highlight that. The other key element to take away of the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 is it established the US dollar specifically as the global reserve currency, which even infuriated some of the other Western colonial powers. So for instance, by the 1960s, France's government, which of course is a still colonial government committing atrocities in Algeria, France's government was complaining of the exorbitant privilege of the US, the United States with its dollar, it's the currency being the global reserve currency. And French President Charles de Gaulle was constantly exchanging US dollars for gold. And as the economist 
Michael Hudson has shown in his book, Super Imperialism, the US was essentially printing more and more money to pay for the balance of payments deficits that it had built up because of payment for war. So the US had been a major surplus country, it was a major industrial producer exporting around the world. But in 1950, the US starts this war on Korea that kills 3 million Koreans, that destroys 80% of the buildings in the northern part of Korea, that was responsible for killing 20% of the Korean population. And in order to pay for that war, the U.S. essentially printed more money and essentially the the dollars pegged to gold became uh, less and less real and more and more fictitious. And then, of course, there was the Vietnam War. And by 1971, Richard Nixon ends the convertibility of the dollar into gold, which had been set at a, a fixed price back in the Bretton Woods Conference of $35 per troy ounce of gold. That ends and the dollar becomes freely floating. And then we enter Bretton Woods II, the era that we're kind of coming out of now when people talk about Bretton Woods III. So the reason I talked about that history, it's not necessarily important to know all of the details, but the two main points to take away are that the international financial system created at the end of World War II was created, one, to benefit the United States with its currency as the global reserve currency, and two, to maintain a certain balance of payments pattern in the world in which the colonial powers with chronic surpluses can keep those chronic surpluses and countries in the global south are trapped in deficits. That's important because it partially explains why there is such a long history of so many countries in the global south being trapped in debt that is unpayable. It is unpayable. It has to be forgiven if these countries truly want to develop economically. But of course, the goal is not to make them develop economically. It's to keep them dependent on the surplus producing countries. Although, again, this changes with Bretton Woods too, and especially as the US becomes more and more of a deficit country. And this is the era that really helps us understand today and the role of the IMF and the World Bank. So when the dollar gets delinked from gold, the US government makes an agreement with Saudi Arabia to create the petrodollar system. So in 1971, Richard Nixon ends the convertibility of the dollar into gold unilaterally, despite the fact that the dollar is the global reserve currency. And in 73, there is the OPEC oil lockout. And this leads to a massive increase in the price of oil in the global market. And the Nixon administration in 1974 sends its treasury secretary to Saudi Arabia to sign an agreement in which Saudi Arabia will sell its oil in dollars in return for protection from the United States. And this is the second historic agreement after 1945 in which U.S. President FDR famously meets on Valentine's Day, his final Valentine's Day, with the king of Saudi Arabia, King Ibn Saud, and they agree that the U.S. will provide military support for Saudi Arabia in return for economic relations. Well, in 1974, it specifically establishes the petrodollar system, which maintains international demand for the U.S. dollar because it's no longer as good as gold. And clearly the United States has, you know, it the dollar is very overvalued given how much it has printed compared to the actual gold and its reserves. So the petrodollar system maintains international demand for the dollar because countries that need to import oil have to get access to dollars to pay for that oil. And of course, Saudi Arabia was the de facto leader of OPEC. And still today, it has a very commanding role in global oil production, it's consistently among the top three, along with the United States and Russia, although that system is changing quite rapidly, which I'll conclude talking about here. So 
getting back to Bretton Woods too. Now, this helps us to understand the third world debt crisis in the 1980s. And I would argue that we're in a moment that is quite similar to the third world debt crisis in the 1980s today, although there are some significant differences which I'll delineate. So what happens is Saudi Arabia now has all of these dollars because it's selling its oil in dollars. And what does it do with those dollars? It recycles those dollars back in US commercial banks. This is petrodollar recycling. And of course, this is a boon to the US economy. And what do the commercial banks in the United States do with all of those dollars? They lend those, do they lend those dollars at low interest rates, especially to countries in the global south. So this is the golden era of Keynesianism still leading toward neoliberalism. It's the golden era of import substitution industrialization. And Latin America is an example of this. You had countries, uh, you had governments in Argentina and Mexico and Brazil that had not socialist governments, but nationalist oriented governments that were serious about industrialization and development of their economies through a system of import industrial import substitution industrialization. And they take these large loans at low interest rates from US banks, and they're using it to fund infrastructure projects and, and industrial development. And what happens? We have the rise of an infamous figure who should, in my opinion, be as well known as Milton Friedman. Maybe he wasn't as influential uh, in the discourse around promoting you know, right-wing neoliberal libertarian economics, but in terms of his impact on US policy, he was one of the most influential figures in the 20th century in US politics. That is Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker was basically, with Friedman, one of the architects of neoliberalism. He was an economist who, from the 1950s, was pushing the idea of monetarism of Milton Friedman that all inflation everywhere, it's a monetary phenomenon caused by too much money chasing too few goods, which is obviously a much more simplistic uh, exp explanation that doesn't explain the reality. But Paul Volcker, he went in and out of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve, and he also worked at Chase Bank, which is important because Professor Michael Hudson, who also previously had worked at Chase, said that Paul Volcker was such an ardent neoliberal, even before neoliberalism was in a coherent ideology. He was such an, uh, you know, a right-wing kind of libertarian economist that he walked around in meetings and in his pocket on his shirt, he had the data for wages in the United States. And he chronically, consistently argued that wages were too high. And his goal was to drop wages in the United States, to ostensibly to bring down inflation. And it's no coincidence that in the 1970s, especially with many of Paul Volcker's policies under, uh, first in the Treasury under Nixon, and then in the Central Bank, the Federal Reserve under Carter, and then of course under Ronald Reagan, he made sure that wages stagnated ever since the 1970s. When Paul Volcker comes in in 1979 as the chair of the Federal Reserve, it is a sledgehammer, and this is the infamous Volcker shock. And we're living in something similar today, although not nearly as dramatic. He drastically raises the federal funds rate, that is interest rates of the Federal Reserve, and this causes a recession. And this is in order to bring down the inflation ostensibly in the United States. Although in reality, as I said, it's, it's to cr crush unions and break the back of labor and drop wages in the United States. And the, the labor movement has never recovered from Paul Volcker. And again, I should point out that he was in Nixon's treasury department. And in fact, Paul Volcker was involved in the Nixon shock, the idea to end the convertibility of the dollar into gold. But he was also appointed by Carter 
1979 by Jimmy Carter to the, as the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And then, of course, he continued on under Reagan. And ironically, uh, Ron Paul, the right-wing libertarian, he has nothing good to, good to say about the Fed. In fact, his slogan as a politician is quite literally, end the Fed. But if you look at what he said about Paul Volcker, he actually praised Paul Volcker as one of the few Federal Reserve chairmen that he actually admired. Anyway, so Paul Volcker's shock, drastically raising interest rates, smashes the labor movement in the United States. And also it leads to the third world debt crisis because what happens, the low interest rate loans that many of these global South countries had taken from US banks suddenly become one, depending on whether or not it was negotiable, some of the interest rates go up or simply the dollar significantly appreciates in relation to other currencies, especially in the global South. And what that means is that as interest rates go up, it encourages investors to, you know, capital flights. I mean, although at this time there was more capital control, but they, they, they invest more back in assets in the United States and treasury bonds because there's, it's their higher interest bearing, right? I mean, just really high returns. So what that also does is it means that countries in the global south who have their currencies depreciate against the US dollar, it makes it very expensive for them to pay off that debt that they had with these US commercial banks. And here comes in the World Bank and especially the International Monetary Fund, which before then, I mean, it was an influential institution, but it wasn't as influential as it became. And this is the, of course, the era of neoliberalism on the rise with Ronald Reagan in the US, Margaret Thatcher in Britain. And here we have the structural adjustments that come in, the Washington consensus policies, and the imposition of political policies on countries in the global south that have to privatize state-owned enterprises and state assets. They have to deregulate their markets, lift capital controls. They have to cut wages. They have to break the back of unions and cut workers' protections. All of the right-wing neoliberal economic policies that we know of today. The reason I went into that history is because that explains how we got to the moment where the International Monetary Fund in particular came in as an institution that had been originally created in order to deal with balance of payments problems, largely. And, and I would highly recommend, I mean, we should keep in mind that when we're talking about this, it's not just a matter of economics and ideology, it's a matter of criminality. And this is shown very well in John Perkins' book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, because as always, we can talk about the policy of the United States above the table, right? It's political foreign policy and its economic policies. But below, below the table, there's also a lot of chicanery and dirty tricks going on. Support for coups, of course, Chile in 1973. Also uh, simply blackmail and corruption and bribery. And John Perkins spells that out very well. He was a consultant for the World Bank and how these are essentially colonial tools that trap countries in unpayable debt and essentially siphon out their wealth and drain that wealth toward the global North countries. Now, that explains Bretton Woods 1, Bretton Woods 2. Now, concluding here, I want to briefly highlight some of the changes we're seeing today because we are seeing significant changes. And one of the main reasons for that is the 2008 financial crash. Although the other significant reason, just as historic, actually more historic, is the rise of China, which according to purchasing power parity, now has a larger, purchasing power parity is a much better measurement of GDP because it measures the purchasing power of a currency rather than the nominal figure, which just measures, it takes the size of the US, uh, the, the Chinese economy in renminbi, the Chinese currency, and then, it, and then just 
you know, converts everything to dollars, which doesn't make sense because if you're a Chinese person paid in yuan, you're not going to use dollars to buy, you know, bread and things. So purchasing power parity is a more accurate measurement. And according to a PPP measurement for five years now, China's economy has been larger than that of the U.S. and continues to grow at around 5% per year, whereas the U.S. economy is largely stagnant. So even on nominal terms, China is very soon going to overtake the United States as the world's largest economy nominally. It already has been. And by the way, if you look at IMF data, the most recent data from April, the United States now represents around 15% of global GDP, PPP. That's about 15% of the global economy. Compare that to around half of the global economy at the end of World War II. So we're talking about a world historic shift in economic power. Anyway, the point is that the other factor I mentioned, the 2008 financial crash, was a wake-up call for many countries. And uh, even the, the Central Bank of China, the People's Bank of China, said that we need to rethink the international financial institutions, international scare quotes, which really are dominated by the United States. And specifically, the governor of the People's Bank of China floated the idea of returning to, to John Maynard Keynes' idea of the bond core, of an international reserve currency that is not the dollar, that does not give the United States the exorbitant privilege of being able to maintain a constant deficit with the rest of the world and constantly import the surplus value produced by workers around the world and not face chronic inflation like countries like Argentina would face, right? Right now. So the People's Bank of China began proposing this idea of creating new financial institutions. This leads to China creating its own development banks and the BRICS system of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa creating the BRICS Bank, now knows the New Development Bank. These are all very important because it shows the opening salvos of Bretton Woods III, or you could say post-Bretton Woods, which might be a better term, and the new international financial order that provides new financial alternatives for countries in the global south that have chronically been trapped in debt and this system in which they can't develop the industry they need and, and, and implement the development policies like import substitution industrialization policies they need in order to get over their chronic deficits because in order to stop having a, a chronic deficit you have to be able to develop your own local industry because you're relying on importing commodities if you don't have oil and gas fertilizers if you don't have that and wheat many countries in the global south are dependent on you know countries like sri lanka or also importing capital goods and technologies that you can't produce right so what we're now seeing is the creation of these new institutions and they're growing very rapidly and they're de-dollarizing, which is a ma massive blow to this system that I talked about in which the US dollar maintains this kind of imperial control over these global international institutions that are you know, essentially dominated by the United States. In the case of the World Bank, the US by far is the largest shareholder with around 16%. And if you go to the World Bank website, they boast openly that every single World Bank president has been appointed by the United States and has been a U.S. citizen. So now we see, for instance, today is June 12th. And this week, the left-wing president of Honduras, Samara Castro, is in China. She just took a trip to the New Development Bank in Shanghai. Brazil's left-wing president, Lula da Silva, also just visited the New Development Bank in April and gave a speech calling for de-dollarization and the creation of a new global reserve currency. And the BRICS is discussing creating a global reserve currency. It was discussed this June in a meeting of the BRICS foreign ministers in South Africa. And it's potentially going to be based on the idea of 
Keynes's concept of the bond core, that is, it's going to be based potentially on a basket of different currencies of members of the BRICS and potentially commodities, instead of giving one country the exorbitant privilege that the United States has had. So Uruguay is in the process of joining the New Development Bank, Bangladesh, the UAE, and uh, Egypt are already members. We, we've seen that Argentina and Saudi Arabia and Zimbabwe have been approved to join. And of course, over 20 countries have applied or, or expressed interest uh, in joining the BRICS system. So we're seeing a completely new international financial framework and time will tell where that leads. But I think it's a very interesting moment in which finally countries that have been trapped in this pattern of being uh, having to take loans from the IMF. Sri Lanka right now is going through its 17th IMF structural adjustment program, 17 since the 1950s. And it's similar for many other countries, Argentina, etc. So these countries that have been trapped in these neoliberal structural adjustment policies are now being able to pursue new paths of economic development, which, you know, they don't have the same political conditionalities imposed on them by other institutions like the New Development Bank. So it's still quite early in the stages of the development of what some economists like Sultan Posa are referring to as Bretton Woods III and a multipolar currency system. But I think it's a very interesting and exciting moment, and it provides a lot of possibilities for the world. Everywhere you look across the global south, there are forces, political movements, political parties, even governments trying to create alternatives to the Western dominated financial system, especially the IMF and the World Bank. I mean, the BRICS I talked about, but oftentimes I think when we talk about, you know, the rise of an increasingly multipolar world, we often forget the other institutions. It's not simply just the U.S. and China and Russia, right? It's also within Latin America, for instance. There are many attempts at creating regional financial institutions and even a currency. So under when Hugo Chavez was president of Venezuela and the first wave of the left-wing governments in the first decade of the 2000s, there was the creation of the Banco del Sur, the Bank of the South, which was created specifically as a World Bank alternative for Latin America by Latin American governments. And there are attempts now to revive that now that Lula is back in Brazil. And there's even discussions of creating a Banco Central del Sur, which is the central bank of the South, in order to oversee the creation of a regional currency for international trade, which is going to be tentatively called the Sur. And now Lula is making this a significant priority. And by the way, in August, there will be presidential elections in Ecuador. And it's likely the left wing is going to win if it's a free and fair election. And the vice presidential candidate, Andres Arauz, is an economist who has been involved in the proposals to create a new currency and a central bank and other financial institutions for Latin America. So when we talk about regional integration with institutions like the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, the CELAC, and the UNASUR, Union of South American Nations, there's also financial institutions and there are trade institutions like Mercosur, which is a, the southern market block. And this is true for other countries. So for instance, um, Southeast Asia through ASEAN, which doesn't have the same, you know, kind of socialist orientation of many of the uh, financial institutions and political institutions a part of, as part of the project of Latin American integration, which were created by leftists. But even in the case of ASEAN, we have seen the emergence of uh, the new of new financial institutions and in particular for trade and for the use of local currencies. And 
There have been recent very important historic discussions in which ASEAN finance ministers and central bank governors have agreed to create mechanisms for regional trade using their own currencies. And even uh, Indonesia, one of the most populous countries on earth with, with a growing economy, they have the Indonesian government has called for, call, called for regional trade in other currencies, not in the US dollar. So everywhere you look, there are countries trying to find alternatives. And not only because of the history of being trapped in debt, in dollar denominated debt owed to these US dominated financial institutions, but also because simply right now the US dollar is overvalued. And I mentioned that Paul Volcker in, in, in the, the Volcker shock from 79 through the early 1980s massively raised interest rates leading to an overvalued dollar, which made it hard for countries in the global south to one, service their debt and two, pay for imports. Well, we're seeing something very similar today. And Jerome Powell, who is the current chair of the Federal Reserve, sees Paul Volcker as his role model. And he's been aggressively raising the Fed funds rate, the interest rate at the Fed. And that has significantly depreciated the value of currencies in the global south, once again, making it difficult for these countries to pay for imports and to service their dollar denominated debt, which is another factor in why so many countries are seeking alternatives. I mean, we see Jerome Powell, the head of the chair of the Federal Reserve has been worried that he isn't raising interest rates enough. And Jerome Powell gave a press conference in which he said that his goal is to get wages down, just as Paul Volcker's goal was to get wages down, because all of these neoliberal economists, they see in consumer price index inflation as a problem with workers having too much power. They have to crush workers' power in the form of wages, which means they have to drop wages and raise unemployment. And you see people like Larry Summers, this neoliberal poster boy who wrote a, by the way, when he was head of the World Bank economist, he wrote this paper, this white paper saying that the rich imperialist countries should export their pollution to the global south because according to their economics, you know, neoliberal uh, econometric models, l life is less valuable in the global south. So you should export all the pollution there to kill them, right? Well, Larry Summers recently gave, gave an interview in which he said that unemployment needs to rise maybe to 10%. So Paul Volcker is being rehabilitated right now as we speak. And it shows that, I mean, as much as people like to say in the United States that neoliberalism is dead, I mean, we shouldn't be overly optimistic about that. I mean, it's dead in much of the rest of the world, but it still lives on in a kind of zombie neoliberalism. In terms of the BRICS, of course, the BRICS economies continue to grow, especially China, which represents over half of the GDP of the BRICS. And but India's economy is growing, although its industrial base is not significantly growing. It's funny as Western media outlets love to question China's GDP figures, but they never question India's GDP figures, especially considering a lot of so-called development in India, which is still under a neoliberal model, involves displacing farmers who are subsistence farmers off of their land and pushing them into shanty towns, slums in urban areas, and then they maybe may maybe have a wage, a low wage at some kind of job, or they're in the informal economy, but because they have some kind of wage, technically you could argue GDP goes up because they weren't producing GDP in scare quotes when they were a subsistence farmer. So anyway, the point is that obviously GDP is not a great measurement and it's it not to mention it doesn't include uh, inequality. It doesn't include the, the uh, quality of economic growth. But the point is anyway, that the BRICS countries as a block now represent a larger share of the global economy when, when GDP is measured by PPP than the G7 does. 
That is a, a massive world historic shift, and that's largely because of China's economic growth. So as the BRICS countries grow and as Western economies are in decline, and especially as European economies are in decline, partially out of their own doing now with these suicidal policies of destroying their energy base. And you know, obviously we have to transition away from fossil fuels and I deeply support that, but doing it immediately by just by cutting off all oil and gas imports from your largest supplier basically overnight, at least in a few months, as the European Union has tried to do, is going to lead to significant deindustrialization of Germany. We're already seeing it. And ironically, the U.S. government, through its own policies, especially the Inflation Reduction Act, which, I mean, it's good that it encourages some green industry, but what's not mentioned is that by subsidizing green industry, it's actually encouraging many European companies, which are simply unable to operate now because of the insanely expensive energy costs in countries like Germany are moving across the Atlantic over to the United States. And now there's discussions of the German government paying for 80% of the energy costs of industry, of heavy industry, which is a massive government subsidy. And obviously that weighs down on the taxpayers. So anyway, the point is that we're seeing a massive shift in a significant economic decline of Western powers and the rise of so-called emerging markets in the South. So what that's because so many of these countries are capitalists, it's going to lead to contradictions. And we're already seeing those contradictions with India, for instance. Of all the countries in BRICS, India is the weakest link. The former Indian diplomat M.K. Bhadrakumar has been writing about this. About uh, he, said, he said India has the BRICS blues, especially now with the rise of left-wing leaders like uh, Lula in Brazil. What we're seeing is India is really playing both sides. And in fact, Modi is visiting the United States this June. And India is part of the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which is an anti-China NATO in the so-called uh, Indo-Pacific region. It's India, Japan, Australia, and the United States. And as we see the U.S. militarization of the region, the creation of new military bases in the Philippines, move toward war with a war on China over Taiwan, uh, you know, whether or not BRICS continues as BRICS as we know it now, is of course up in the air, but the point about it is not BRICS as an institution as it exists currently. It's about the creation of a new global South oriented block of countries that want to develop and have economic alternatives to the Washington consensus. That's what's important about it. And especially the creation of a new non-aligned movement, because that's essentially what we're seeing. The non-aligned movement was crushed largely by the United States and through, for instance, the coup in Indonesia against Sukarno and the genocide in 1965 and 1966 against more than a million people, between one and three million leftists in Indonesia who were just massacred. And Indonesia had been a significant leader in the non-aligned movement. And Nasser, not his death in Egypt. And anyway, the point is that we're seeing something resurge today. And that provides a lot of opportunities for the global south to develop. But also, more importantly, it provides space for new economic models. Because in the neoliberal era, at the peak of neoliberalism, which is co-determinate with also the peak of U.S. hegemony in the 1990s, it was almost impossible to try to develop socialism. I mean, Cuba survived, but it went through the special period, which was extremely difficult. And you look at the sanctions on countries like DPRK, and I mean, the socialist government of Yugoslavia was overthrown. The Sandinistas lost power in 1990. It was an era of counter-revolution. And now what we're seeing is conditions that allow countries to pursue new economic 
programs. That was not simply possible in the 1990s. Finally, to briefly answer the question about what would happen if the US dollar ends as the global reserve currency? Well, one, it would be good for the rest of the world. And China has no interest in the renminbi being the global reserve currency, zero whatsoever. China is not going to lift its currency controls. It's not going to make it freely convertible. It's going to maintain strict monetary policy because China is not implementing neoliberal economic policies. And the central bank is not this independent neoliberal central bank like the neoliberals constantly tell us. We have to have an independent central bank, which means not democratically accountable, which means not implementing monetary policy on behalf of workers, but rather on behalf of the private commercial banks and and corporations and hedge funds and the S&P 500, right? So in, in, the, in the context of what is gonna happen, I mean, I think we're gonna increasingly see a move toward a multipolar currency world. Yes, the renminbi is gonna be used more, also the ruble is being used for trade, for instance, especially for commodities buying oil and gas. India is using the rupee in its local trade. Um, Iran is encouraging local trade in its currencies. So what we're going to see is a regionalization of trade. I mentioned the ASEAN countries are trying to use local trade for their regional trade. The U.S. dollar is not going anywhere. I mean, I'm, I'm there are people who say like, you know, there's going to be hyperinflation. The U.S. dollar is going to be toilet paper. No, the U.S. dollar is still, I think, probably for many years going to remain a significant uh, global reserve currency. It's not going to be the global reserve currency, but it's going to be used probably as the plurality of the assets held in the foreign exchange reserves of central banks around the world with other currencies and commodities like gold. And we also see um, that many countries in the West that are basically kind of economically subordinated to the United States are going to continue to use the US dollar and hold on to US assets like treasuries. But we're going to see a significant decrease in the power of the US dollar. And that means that the US can't simply sanction the rest of the world into oblivion. More than one third of the global population lives in countries sanctioned by the United States, unilaterally, illegally, in violation of international law. Countries representing almost one third, over one quarter of global GDP. So, I mean, this is devastating to many countries. And as the value of the dollar eventually decreases because it's going to lead to a devaluation, depreciation of the US dollar, unless the central bank consistently just keeps interest rates high, which is going to have, you have this catch 22, right? Because the Federal Reserve needs to keep interest rates low and maintain these quantitative easing policies to pump up the asset price inflation, which has been the leader of so-called economic growth, which has been a jobless recovery since the 2008 crash. It's all been growth in scare quotes, in the fire sector of finance, insurance, and real estate. So it's all just based on this big asset bubble. It's not even just in real estate and stocks and bonds. It's everything. They call it the everything bubble. So the U.S. has to either drop its low interest, uh, its zero or low interest rate policy in order to lead to so-called economic growth, according to the neoliberal model, or it's going to face chronic inflation and other countries are going to de-dollarize more and more. So the U.S. is in a serious catch-22. It's in a major economic crisis. And finally, what this means is it's something good for the U.S. workers, but also bad for U.S. workers. With the decrease of the power of the U.S. dollar, the U.S. is going to have to reindustrialize, which is good for workers because it means there's going to be more and more jobs, and that's going to lead to more possibility for unionization. 
and high quality, good paying jobs in industry, which was, you know, many jobs in the 1960s and 70s before deindustrialization and outsourcing. So that's the U.S. is going to have to reindustrialize. However, at the same time, as the dollar becomes less powerful and it's used less in international reserves, it's going to decrease the demand for the dollar. And especially as the Persian Gulf countries start trading their oil and gas and other currencies, it's also going to decrease the demand for, for the dollar. We already see that the UAE is selling liquefied natural gas to China in the Chinese Yuan, and Saudi Arabia has expressed interest in doing so as well. So as there's a decreased demand for the, the dollar globally, it's going to fuel more inflation, and it's going to de eventually, depending on what the U.S. Federal Reserve's monetary policy is, it's probably going to lead to a significant devaluation of the U.S. dollar, which does make exports more competitive, so it makes the possibility of reindustrialization more possible, but it also is going to be a blow to the purchasing power of U.S. workers. So U.S. workers are going to have to go back to a reality like in the 60s and 70s, where they can't simply maintain this massive current account deficit with the rest of the world, importing all of these cheap consumer goods from places like China. And that's the way that despite the fact that U.S. wages have been stagnant since the 1970s, it hasn't been felt as much because of the very cheap consumer goods from Asia, particularly from China, but also from Bangladesh, Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines, Central America as well. So it's going to lead to a decrease in the purchasing power of workers. But if it also leads to industrialization of the U.S. economy, which is what it should do, then that that means that we're going to see more economic possibilities for U.S. workers. So there are bad things for the U.S. It's for U.S. workers. U.S. workers have benefited from the massive deficit that the U.S. maintains with the rest of the world. But the most of that benefit has not gone to U.S. workers. It's gone to capitalists, to people holding their wealth in investment funds. And they're going to see a, de a, a depreciation in their net worth as the U.S. dollar depreciates in value. So it's going to be good for the world. The U.S. dollar should not be the global reserve currency. We should welcome the resurgence of a more multipolar currency world, but it needs to come at the same time with reindustrialization and not the surfacization, like as becoming serfs, like with AI taking over all jobs and everyone just becoming, you know, like a, an Uber driver.